I need him now, don't you? Amen. I ask you to take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts chapter 6. The book of Acts chapter 6. You can go to verse 1 and I'll read that there in just a few minutes. It's on page 1,259 in the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, a little bit later on in the sermon, for you guys that have that deacon nomination form, if you want to really get ahead of things, then go ahead and also turn to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's located on page 1,363 in your pew Bible, and you can put that deacon nomination form right there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, picking up in verse 8. We will get to that here in just a few minutes, and so you're turning now to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and then we will be referencing in a few minutes 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. I know this next statement is not going to come as a shock to anybody, but I am not considered a handyman. Now, I'm serviceable to take care of many of the needs that could arise around our home. But since I'm not a handyman, there comes a time when I have to ask others, those trained, those experienced, those capable, to step in and help me. If you recall, I mentioned last week that we had portions of our home painted, and they did an incredible job. Here we are three weeks out, and the paint is still up there. And we love it. They were fast, they were good, they were thorough, and they were neat. Now, I have painted many areas of our home before. And you're going, I don't know if I believe that or not. Well, I'll tell you this. I have a shirt and a pair of jeans at home that I have always painted in. Now, before I go on with that story, I've been painting for many years, and I can still wear the same pants and shirt. That was a positive I took from this week. But I have this pair of pants, these pair of jeans, and this shirt that I wear every time that I paint. You see, when I paint, I tend to get paint everywhere. Many times where it belongs, like on the wall or on the trim, often other times where it does not, and that's where these jeans and this shirt come in, because every time I get it someplace else, I'm just wiping it off and putting it on me. And these jeans and this shirt that I can pull out, they show you every color I've ever painted in all these years. In over 25 years of living where we live right now, these jeans and this shirt can tell a great story. I'm also not good at painting. It's not just that I have the right shirt and the right pants and I make a mess, but I'm just not good at it. I don't have the time, the skills or the experience to do it very well. Professional painters, they have all those things. And I am glad. I'm glad that there are people that I can call on to help, make, to help me take care of things that I desire to have done, but cannot effectively complete by myself. So let's stand and read together from Acts chapter 6. We're going to read the first seven verses of Acts Chapter 6. And it reads and follows Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, 
There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parnamus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of the Lord spread, and a number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Thank you, church. You may sit down and keep your scripture open. We're going to talk about this scripture for just a moment or two, and then I've already referenced we're going to go someplace else in the next few minutes as we talk about deacons for just a few minutes. Verse 1 says, Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying. Now we need to understand that in this phrasing, in the book of Acts, the use of the word disciples is not consistent with Peter and James and John, the 12. You'll notice when we read this that it talks about the apostles. That would be the 12 apostles or the disciples as they're originally called. Or you'll hear them called the 12. And so the term disciples is to define everybody else that has come to know Jesus. And so in this room right now, we would be called for the purposes of Acts chapter Six, we would be called disciples, those that have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this verse 1 says that in those days, the number of disciples was multiplying. Now, I'm a numbers guy. You know, addition is good. Subtraction is awful when you're talking about numbering things. Multiplication, that's where it's at. That's where things can really grow. And Scripture doesn't say, and the church was adding a few people every day. No, it said that the church, the number of disciples was multiplying. That's on and on and on. That's a great factor. That's also a great recognition of what we should be doing as a church and as children of God. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20 says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Jesus had told the apostles, the twelve, the original disciples, that they would receive power, and with that power they were to be witnesses, and that people will, because of that power and because of their faithful witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, people would come to faith. People would come to salvation and come to know Jesus. Verse 1 says, in those days, the number of disciples was multiplying. The church, as it was becoming to be, was growing. An ever-increasing number of people were coming to accept Jesus as Savior. And I went back and I took a tour, and I always encourage you to do this. Don't just read a verse. Go back and grab some context. And I went back to Acts chapter 1, and I just read Acts chapter 1, and I kept on going until I got to Acts chapter 6 because, see, it talks about in those days. I wanted to make sure I understood what was going on in those days. You see, if we miss the context of something, we may miss the impact to our lives as well. 
And so as I was taking my tour of Acts, I ran into Acts chapter 2, verse 41. It says, and that day, that's the day of Pentecost, about 3,000 souls were added to them. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Then I went to Acts chapter 4, verse 4. It says, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says, the multitude of those who believe were of one heart. Multitude. That sounds just like a big number, doesn't it? Acts chapter 5, verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And Acts chapter 5, verse 42 says, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And then we get to Acts chapter 6, and it says that in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying. So we see what's been happening. The teaching and the preaching of Jesus as the Christ. The gospel was being shared, and the church was growing, and people were coming to know the Lord from everywhere. What a miraculous time that must have been. Now, if you take time to read Acts 2, 3, 4, and 5, like I've encouraged, you will see that on every side, the apostles were challenged, threatened, arrested, beaten, and commanded to stop the teaching and the preaching of the gospel. So if we're not careful, we'll read that Jesus died. He left the disciples, the apostles, with some responsibility. Say, go and be a witness, and the church is just going to grow, and it's just like easy, easy. But when you go back in and fill in all the blanks in there, these disciples were doing this obedient work that Jesus called them to do at a cost. You see, in these chapters, when you teach and preach on Jesus, you face challenges. And you'll read and see all of the challenges that they faced. But I encourage you to read these chapters later today because you're going to notice, wow, they were under a lot of pressure by the world. But then you're going to see all these verses I've just read to you, but people kept coming to know the Lord because they taught and preached the gospel. Church, can I share with you that if we will continue to teach and preach the gospel, people will continue to come to know Jesus as Savior. That should be our desire, not just as a church congregation, but as a family and as an individual, we should be driven by this. Church, can I tell you that it said, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, do you know that if we will, if you will individually take up the gospel of Jesus Christ in the, play, in the way that you live your life, in the way that you speak to people, in everything that you do, if your family does, and if we as a congregation do that, those days of seeing the gospel multiply and save people, those days can become these days. Listen, I'm thrilled. We've seen God do a lot of things in the year 2023 so far, and it's just July, and I do not want to see it end because 
you've gotten to the point where you're going, anybody being baptized this week? Anybody being baptized this week? You know, we've seen a lot of that activity go on the first six and a half months of the year. Church, can I tell you that if we want to continue to see people coming to know Jesus as their Savior, you're going to have to share it. You're going to have to go. We're going to have to make disciples. We're going to have to be obedient to this as these 12 apostles were. Those days can become these days if we will unashamedly lead with the gospel. But that's why I want to encourage you to read Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5 because you'll understand that in order for those days to become these days, not only are we going to have to be faithful to share, we're going to have to be strong to stay in the fight because the world will come after you. The church was growing. And based on my just reading, I'm going, well, Satan couldn't stop the apostles. That's why I want you to read Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5 to get the context, because the disciples were going, man, I'm driven. The more people come to know Jesus, the more I'm going to share him. And they said twice in there, as they were being threatened and beaten and challenged and jailed, they said, it is better for us to follow what God says than it is for us to follow man. Church, I, I want to see those days, these days. Satan couldn't stop these apostles because they got a good share of how faithful God was and that power that was happening and seeing people come to know the Lord that they're going, okay, you can challenge us, but it's just going to make us do it more. So Satan goes into plan B, I believe. And he creates problems within the church. Church, we all know, have experienced or have heard of churches where growth was interrupted by troubles. Look at verse 1. Right after, it says, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint. Those words right there can stop a pastor in his tracks. Satan jumps in and says, Oh, it's over. Fear sets in. It can happen. When we hear a complaint, we're going, oh, no, here we go. It was a good ride, but here we go. And we go, it was not. Trouble was brewing in the new church, in the multiplying, growing church, and it was brewing as a diverse, growing number of people with diverse backgrounds, experiences, and expectations felt that some of their needs were not being met. Now, we have felt that before. In this church, it's possible right now that the overarching theme of God is not meeting every single one of your individual needs, and you're going to have to make a decision. What is more important, the overarching gospel of God or my individual needs? And it says here that in verse 1 that a complaint arose, and in this specific case, the widows were not being consistently taken care of by the church, and some could get in and say it was culturally different because of the backgrounds of these. I read someplace that said, well, it was probably, it could have been cultural differences. Some said it could have just been that there was just so many going on that they just couldn't get it done. So the apostles, verse 2, the twelve gathered the multitude of disciples. They called a business meeting. Everybody, all the saints in this body of believers, the 12 said, okay, everybody, come on. Can you imagine how many people that was? 
we've already seen that it's 5,000 men at least, and then it said multitudes of men and multitudes of women. I don't know what the number is, but let's just say it's a lot. Okay? And they called them together. Do you know sometimes it is important that every single member of the church be involved? And you're going, Jeff, you should say that differently. You're right, I should. It is always important that you are involved in the service of your Savior in this world that you're in. And sometimes you do it as a part of the church. So they called a meeting. And in verse 2, they said this, It is not desirable that we, we is defined as the 12 apostles, should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, I stopped just a second. I just thought on that for a bit. And here's what I read into that statement that the apostles were saying. And you're going, yeah, I can see how you would believe that. These, these apostles believe that they likely could fix the problem. They didn't say they couldn't fix it. They said, it's not desirable that we stop doing this, but they likely believed that we could fix the problem. That if they just stopped the teaching and stopped the preaching and they put their concentrated 12 selves on the problem, they could likely come up with a resolution and make it work. But the apostles understood through the wisdom of God, the power of the Holy Spirit working in their lives, that this was not the best answer. You know the scripture said, that's not desirable. This would mean that the pipeline, if they did it, if the apostles said, okay, we're going to stop and fix this. That means that the pipeline of teaching and preaching of the gospel would stop. Yeah, could they fix the problem? Yes. What's the cost? People stop coming to know Jesus. The apostles are not thinking that this matter is unimportant. When you hear them say, well, it's not good that we leave the preaching and the teaching in order to serve tables. That's not them saying these serving tables is unimportant. This is them saying this is so important, but it can't cost us what's more important. And so they gather the church together to fix an internal issue and allow the progress of the gospel to be maintained through the teaching and the preaching. So it goes on in verse 3, and he says, Therefore, brethren, because it's not desirable for us to stop the preaching and the teaching, therefore, brethren, here's what we're going to do. They're assigning this important activity to the church. And so this is one of the coolest things ever. This is one of the few times that I, as the pastor, can stand up before you and go, God's telling you to do something he's not telling me to do. I like that. But look at what he's telling you to do. I mean, I'm telling them to do. You guys get where we're going already, right? Verse 3. He assigns an important activity to the church. You seek out seven men of good reputation. This is the way I read it. You seek out seven men full of the Holy Spirit. You seek out seven men full of wisdom. Verse 3. You seek out seven men whom we will appoint over this business. Okay, church. 
Teaching and preaching is going on. God is multiplying. We don't want to stop and do this. We want to keep that pipeline going. There is a problem. It is an important problem. We want to deal with that problem. And so we need you to select seven of the best. And they tell them to go pray about it. Think about it. And we will appoint these seven men to fix the problem. While you 12 men continue to teach and preach the gospel. Verse 5 said it pleased the whole multitude. Church, can I tell you that that's a miracle? Right? You guys, you guys get where I'm going, right? The whole church came together and they agreed 100% that this was the right thing to do. And you're going, well, that's probably the last time the church has agreed 100% on anything. <laughs> and you know what's cool about that? That just proves it's of God. That adds validity to this message and to the scripture that God has given us today. Verse 5 says, it pleased the whole church. Church, did you catch that? Everybody thought that this was a great idea. Verse 5 goes on and says, so since they thought it was a great idea, they acted. They chose. The body of believers, the church, the members, they chose. This was not the apostles who chose but the church, the members. This is not the pastor who chooses. This is the members. Verse 5 says that they chose and their names are listed. And all of these men are important. All of these men are saved. All of these men are willing to serve. And all of these men are willing to be used. And the church set these seven men before the apostles. And they prayed, the apostles did, and they laid hands on them. Now, we've had a special service here a number of years. I've been a part of many. I was actually ordained as a deacon in 1989. And you're going, you're not old now. Yeah, I'm plenty old. Ordained as a deacon in 1989. But if you've been to an ordination service or if you've been ordained, you remember this night and you bring you right down here. I had to sit on my knees. I don't know why they take it easy on people now, but they bring chairs. That means I'm considered an old-time deacon, I guess, because the new-timers go, why would you not use a chair? But they come through, and then you've seen the ordained men come through and lay their hands on them. Now, there's nothing special that happens in that moment. I'm going to go ahead and just debunk that altogether. Let me tell you what I do when I come and lay hands on a deacon or somebody who's going into the pastorate, because those are the two ordinations. I lay my hands on them. And I'll say, I love you, and I am so thankful that you have come to know Jesus, that you love the Lord, and that you are serving him. And I need you to recognize, above all things, that in this moment, you do not need to become someone different. You just need to continue doing what got you recognized as being faithful from the very beginning. Church, we need to understand, they just didn't go pick up seven random people. They picked the best of the best to do that. And it worked. Look at verse 7. Then the word of the Lord spread. That then is after there was a problem, after the, the apostles said, not ours to fix, the Lord will show us how to fix it, after the church chose seven men, after they were ordained and set aside, after all of this, it worked. 
How do you know it worked? Look at verse 7. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Church, can I tell you that anything that the church does that does not impact the teaching and the preaching of the gospel, the church should not do. But let me put it to you this way. Whatever a church does that allows the teaching and the preaching of the gospel is a good thing for the church to do. And this church did the good thing because we see that the gospel continued to be shared. Now, many consider this scripture, Acts chapter 6, as the beginning of the office of deacon. You see in verse 2, the word diakonos was used, literally means servant. These deacons were called to serve tables. Now, some could ask, so are deacons just servants? Well, I think within that question might be a second question. Are deacons leaders? So I want to point out a few things as we talk about this just for a few more minutes. For starters, the phrase, just a servant, is not a correct phrase. There is no such thing for a follower of Christ as being just a servant. Servanthood, biblically, is not considered to be a menial task. I could list you servants after servants after servants in God's Word, but our Lord Jesus Christ himself is servant of all. He taught us that in order to be first, we must be last. And if a deacon were simply, simply a synonym for the word servant, then every member of the church would be a deacon because every member of the church is called and gifted to serve one another. Go study Ephesians chapter 4 or 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Deacons serve, but as they do, they equip the rest of the body to serve as well. Church, can I tell you that being a servant is a great position in the eyes of God. The Holy Spirit mandates, as we saw in verse 3, men who are of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. These qualifications for deacons are likewise meticulous about the spiritual and leadership characteristics on display. Deacons are not just servants, but they are leaders. And this is where I want to ask you, you can leave the book of Acts Flip on over to 1 Timothy. Now, if you're in the, the uh, media room, we've set this up. You've got it ready on the screen right there. We're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. You can have it in your scripture there, or you can see it on the screen right here. But 1 Timothy chapter 3, picking up in verse 8. I'm going to give just a second. I hear pages. Any pastor don't like to hear it? sound of turning pages is, uh, he's mistaken. And I appreciate those of you that are just flipping your book around, making me think you're looking too. I'm real easy to be satisfied up here, okay? Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 3, picking up in verse 8 says this, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, 
ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So look at verse 8. It says, likewise. You see, Scripture places two positions within the leadership of the church with set-aside qualifications. First is pastor, which you would find in one place in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 through 7, just above this, which is what led to the word likewise, and then here as deacon. And when you read this scripture, you, you should be struck that God has a strong view about what type of person he wants to represent and lead the church. It's hard to walk away not seeing God being very specific. Therefore, if God has a high expectation of the character of who should be led, and he gives within the deacon parameter the church the ability to select, the church should be wise about how they go about selecting their deacons. Amen? The word reverent means worthy of respect one with a serious mind about spiritual matters, one with a serious mind about leadership in the church matters. This candidate should hold an inner character or integrity that causes others to see them as consistent and having a faithful lifestyle to garner respect and trust. The deacon, Scripture said, should not be double-tongued. This means they must be sincere, that they should know the truth and then stand for that same truth. You see, some in the world can say one thing and do another, but a deacon, one of the qualifications that God has laid out for this person, for this man, is to know the truth and stand for the truth. Verse 8, he must hold high the honor of God. No behaviors that would bring challengers to the gospel. Scripture says, not given to wine, not driven by money. Now, I lump all of this up in the theology of Scripture, I think, but in how I look at these qualifications, God says, these men should love me so much that they will do nothing to cause anyone to stumble on their way to the cross. Romans 14, 13 says, determine, Paul says, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Isaiah 57, 14, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. Do you know that Scripture teaches that we as individuals are free? Everything, we are at liberty for all things, but not all things draw people to the gospel. Scripture teaches that we should be ready not just to not put things in people's way. The job of a deacon is to come through the process and not personally put anything in the way, but then actively begin to remove things that they find so that people can get to the cross. Leviticus 19, 14 says, You shall not place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 23, that a person is a stumbling block when they do not set their mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of men. And 1 Corinthians 8, 9 says, But take care that this liberty... As a child of God, you have liberty. But make care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. A deacon, as I summarize in these couple of verses, should be willing to live their lives removing stumbling blocks and not creating any. So therefore, a deacon 
says no to many things that he could be entitled to say yes to, that the world might say yes to, but the deacon says no because they value the clarity of the gospel on the way. And so when you nominate someone, you want to nominate someone who demonstrates this spirit. Verse 9, they uphold the truth with a pure conscience. If it's in God's word and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, they willingly yield to it. If it differs from the truth, they stand against it. This is a body of truth revealed in God's word that is to be upheld. Verse 10 says, let them be tested. They should not be new converts to Christ but their testimony over time will validate their commitment to Jesus. If this person that you're nominating, you're thinking about, just came to know Christ yesterday, they're not ready to lead yet. That's not a negative statement about them. It's just a fact of life that I am smarter and more experienced because of where I have fallen and what I have learned over time, and you want leaders that have learned and grown and matured. Verse 11, they're wives. Have you ever heard the statement that behind every good deacon is a godly wife? It's true. When you are ordaining a deacon, you're making a decision about his wife as well. They serve together. So much so that I understand that this is true about pastor as well. I understand that the reason you allow me to remain pastor at First Baptist Church is because of Angela Rasnick. I get that. She's precious. She's the backbone to me. And therefore, you should hold her accountable as well. Same thing's true with a deacon and his wife. Scripture says that they must be equally reverent. Verse 12, their marriages and their families must be under the control of God. You see, if a man cannot lead his home well, it is not possible for him to lead the church. There is an underlying assumption that they, the deacon, like a pastor, will be called upon to care for God's church. So the question is not whether a deacon is a servant or a leader, because leadership defined correctly is servanthood. Deacons maintain the unity of the body by giving leadership to the serving and meeting of needs. They serve the body by removing potential obstacles to unity by meeting these needs. You see, the original problem in the Jerusalem congregation was the perceived slight to the Grecian widows. Think about this for a moment. There was a problem in the original church, Something was not working correctly. The church was beginning to struggle to lose its direction and its purpose. And God's answer to the church multiplying because of the teaching and the preaching of the gospel was not, hey, stop that, go fix something. It was, I've created men for things such as this. And the office of deacon was birthed, scripturally speaking. They led these deacons by. Did you notice what you didn't hear? It says that they were selected and that the church moved on and grew. Well, we missed all the haggling and the business meeting and, and the processing and, and all this stuff. But you know what we're given is? 
They came together because they were directed by God and they had a solution. We're not told what that solution is. We're just told that that solution worked. They served by being on the front lines of the implementation in the actual planning and in the actual work of serving. By organizing with wisdom the love and care of these widows, these first deacons were empowering the body of Christ to both maintain its command to care for one another, but to also maintain the continuing and ongoing gospel mission of the church. Now, as we discuss the office of deacons with current deacons and future candidates, as you're here, they are asked to consider many, these biblical qualifications and many other things. We have conversations with them. Questions like, will you live out and share your faith? Will you support the mission of the local church? Will you serve faithfully the church and its members? Will you seek to use the spiritual gifts that God has given to you? Will you provide spiritual leadership and management within your home? And many, many other things. Each of these considerations are both service and leadership. Deacons are servants as defined by God. Deacons are leaders as defined by God. I can tell you that I love the deacons who serve First Baptist Church. I see these men and their wives not only as servants of this body, but as leaders within this church. I can tell you without hesitation that this pastor would not be affected without the sacrificial service and leadership of the following list of active deacons. We have 18 active deacons as we try to set out each year. And these are the 18 right now, maybe 17, I think. Chad Banks, Jeff Blackwell, Josh Bobo, Steve Caffey, David Compton, Barry Cooper, Jeff Haynes, Randy Head, Tom Lamb, Burt Landers, Marshall Lyle, Bobby Lynch, Michael Perryman, Ken Posey, Colton Richardson, Chris Williams, and Alan Woodard. These men, men, I love you. Without your leadership, without your support and encouragement, I could not be faithful in what I'm doing. Because you are faithful. We work well as a team. And our church continues to grow, and the Lord continues to move, partially due to these deacons doing their job well, so that I can be free to do my job as well together. So church, it's time for you to do your God-given, important act of service. Everybody should have one of these. Church, you have been commissioned by God through Scripture to select the deacons that serve within your church. And I encourage you to take this and nominate men to serve as deacon. But before you do, I want you to reread the Scriptures from today. Pray over who God would have you to nominate and then nominate those men that, Lord, that the Lord places on your heart. Remember, God has placed a standard upon the office of deacons. Only men who meet these scriptural qualifications should be nominated. Church, yours is an important job. 
Please take time in the next week or two to complete your nomination process and then submit your ballot by placing it in the offering basket. And if you'll notice on the bottom, we want everybody to turn that in by August the 6th. You're going, Jeff, that's, that's two weeks. That's plenty of time. I gave it to you last week. We've talked all about it this week. That's two weeks for you to follow what the Lord lays upon your heart to do. The full list of men on the back of the ballot is just this. It is not a list of men that we have deemed qualified. We're just giving you a list of males, 21, who are a member for at least a year. It is you who get to pray over who you nominate. And then the deacons will then take this scriptural blueprint and have conversations with those men that you nominate. And we have a good-sized church. One of the things I hear our deacon body say over the past number of years, which is what's led to this sermon, perhaps, is we wish the church would take a greater role in nominating men for this position. Church, if you don't nominate men for this position, nobody else will. I'll tell you this. I don't nominate men. You do. And so I'm asking you to do your important job. God is moving mightily in this church. Thank you for praying about which servant leaders will serve next. So church, when I walk away from this, I'm going, wow, church coming together is important and we each have a role. True. It's an important role. True. It's a service role. True. It's a gospel important role. True. Church, God's not going to call us to do anything that does not become gospel forward in all that it does. Amen? So I look forward to your nominations. I look forward to you participating. And I'm so thankful of the men. Now, there are other deacons that have served in days past, and I'm not seeking to exclude them. I limited my thank you this morning to only those that are currently active because every three years, deacons take a break. And so except for those 17 men, we have... I think by my count, another 12 men in the church that are ordained as deacon and have served in one capacity or another over time. Church, God has given us faithful men. And he continues to grow our church by adding faithful men. And their wives are precious. So church, let's seek the Lord on behalf of what he desires to do so that the gospel continues to be the tip of the spear in how we lead in all that we do.